Welcome to Canada's podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Canada's podcast. My name is Rivers Corbett. I am honored and thrilled to be the Atlantic Canadian podcast over Canada's podcast, which is Canada's number one podcast podcast for entrepreneurs. And of course, I'm always very, very leaning towards Atlantic Canadian rock star stories. And today's story is exactly one of those. I'm really pleased to have from Ecuador, uh, which originally started the journey in New Brunswick, Matthew Carpenter Alvaro. Welcome, Matthew, to Canada's podcast, Atlanta Canada version. Thank you, Rivers. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yes, sir. Well, um, I, you know, I, I know you're from New Brunswick. I know you went to St. Thomas University, and right. I know that you're uh, you're you're an entrepreneur. And I've done my background on you. And before, so I'm not going to dive right into that. What I want to dive right into is that you were referred. You were referred by a previous guest on the uh, Canada's podcast, David Alston, who was very near and dear to New Brunswick, let alone the Atlantic Canadian landscape. Uh, the conversation was absolutely freaking brilliant with him. And at the end of the conversation, I said to David, is there anybody that you would recommend that I talk to to bring it into the podcast? And dude, without any hesitation, he said you. And he said a couple <laughs> more, by the way, but he said you first. And it was like, oh my gosh, you've got to talk to Matthew. And of course, he was so kind, David, as you know, an awesome mm -hmm. man. He made that introduction right away. So tell us why you think he said that I needed to talk to you. Obviously, with your background in New Brunswick and Atlanta, Canada, that's the natural connection. But tell us as to why he said, yeah, get a hold of him. Well, um, I'm, I'm flattered that he recommended me, um, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here as well. Uh, I think that what he was probably referencing was the fact that he had invited me to speak to his marketing cohort, and I had shared with them some of my experiences developing uh, my sort of approach and philosophy to marketing based on my experience living in Latin America. And I think um, my journey is somewhat um, unconventional, primarily because <laughs> instead of instead of building my life around my career, I've sort of built my career around my life, and that has taken me to a number of different in interesting places, including uh, you know ten, over ten years here in in Ecuador. But I suspect that's probably what he was referring to. Yeah. Well, we're going to dive into that then, because it's not right to just share only the nuggets with David Alston. He needs <laughs> to share a bit. So we'll get into that in a bit, but. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to put context here mm -hmm. for this conversation, Matthew. And and uh, by the way, folks, you got to go onto his LinkedIn site, mm -hmm. uh, Matthew Carpenter Arvero, A R E V A L O. And the first things I see are ex Google, ex Twitter. What does that mean? So um, it, it was uh, a bit of a strange journey to get to both of those places. But um, I graduated from St. Thomas University, as you mentioned. I grew up in St. John. Uh, graduated from St. Thomas, and I got a scholarship um, to do graduate school in the UK. So I went to Oxford, I studied philosophy, and I'd always had this, like one foot in the technology world and one foot in the philosophy world. I'd started university as a computer science student and then switched to, to um, literature and philosophy after the first week. Right. And uh, when I was graduating from, uh, from, from Oxford, uh, I got an offer to go and work at Google, 
And I said, no, because I had made this commitment to my wife and my wife's family that after we finished graduate school, we would move back to Ecuador. Uh, When I was here, um, I was initially a a high school teacher. And uh, I I had this insight, which is that um, there throughout the uh, so-called developing world, there's a lot of people who are very, very talented, but their skills are often underappreciated and uh, undercompensated in their local markets for for a variety of different reasons. So my thought was, why couldn't you develop a website with this a global team with people based in Latin America or in other places? So I started developing my first company, which was uh, doing web design for companies in the United States and Europe. Um, it, it went okay, but it, this was 2006. So the world wasn't quite mm. ready for remote teams and nearshore teams. Um, but I was able to leverage that, uh, that work into a job at Google when my wife uh, got a scholarship a few years later to study at UC Berkeley. Um, mm-hmm. Has this campus not far from Berkeley, which they're basically on two different sides of San Francisco. So I wrote the people I had interviewed with uh, years before and said, "Hey, uh, you know, I I know I turned you down before, but I've been working in technology and I've been working as an entrepreneur. Is there any chance I could apply again?" And I, I got in under the uh, before the the crisis happened in in twenty uh, two thousand and eight. Um, and so I spent three years at Google and it was really a school for me. Um, mm. I didn't have a lot of practical business experience before that. Google, I think, aside from being a technology company, is really a company with a, 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 a really core management philosophy. And um, part of their idea is that uh, middle managers either make or break your organization because bad middle managers will um, cost you a lot of great employees so I, I really feel like I got a master's degree there in, in how to manage people and how to build cultures. Uh, and so I did that for three years. Uh, then I, I stepped away from technology almost entirely. I was at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland for two years. Uh, yes. Then I came back to Ecuador and one of uh, uh, Silicon Valley is actually a pretty small place. So a lot of my former colleagues had moved from Google to Facebook and Twitter and one of them wrote me and said, hey, we're trying to set up a Latin American sales operation. Um, maybe you could help us. So I went and worked for Twitter for a while. But ultimately, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I had to take the leap at some point. Um, and so as soon as I finished up my time at, at uh, Twitter, I started my company, which is built on the same notion as the first company. Only now in uh, 2014, the world was starting to get ready for globalized services. Let's talk on that in a, in a quick sec. So a couple of uh, observations come from that conversation. The first one is that you initially said no to Google because you promised your wife's family you would go back to Ecuador, and then she proceeds to take you to UC Berkeley. So that's right. That's, that's, that's right. So that was okay when she decided to take you away. I love it. And the second thing, what I love, and you know, I don't hear a lot of this conversation happening from, uh, from entrepreneurs. Um, about the job ahead of it. And I know I had a job before I started my entrepreneurial community uh, journey, and I, I totally agree with you. I got paid to be educated in the world of business. It was the telecommunications industry for me. Right. So as entrepreneurs, you know, don't be afraid of taking that job prior to beginning the journey because of what you can learn and get paid for it. So I think that's absolutely amazing that you, that you brought. I, I, I've never heard that in the many podcasts that I've done. So thank you for reinforcing that. So talk about that company that was reborn in 2014. Uh, what was the value proposition 
that you were uh, that you were really focusing in on on solving the problem of? Yeah. So I, I would add to to what you say to what you said is that um, I've been extremely fortunate to live um, with a great deal of privilege, and right. uh, we had great public schools in New Brunswick, and I was able to leverage that into scholarships. Um, and get a great education. And, and I've had very few barriers in, in my path. But and, and so the the benefit of that is that a lot of people look at certain uncertainty as risk, but I've, I've always seen uncertainty as opportunity. Uh, and so um, and, and this is also a big part of my wife's influence in my life is learning to kind of mm. embrace uncertainty. Um, and so when we started, the, when I started the company in 2014, I had the same notion that eventually we will sell our services to companies in Canada and the United States. And okay. what I was looking at was there were a lot of providers in India that were doing, uh, for example, um, website design. Um, but the model wasn't really working all that well for a lot of people because uh, either these companies had high turnover and so you weren't getting great quality or... Uh, something would happen in the development at three in the morning, you wake up and turn on your computer at eight or nine and you've lost six or seven hours of work. Um, mm. So uh, my thought was, first of all, we're not going to compete on cheap. We're going to compete on quality. Mm -hmm. And second, um, we're obviously in the same time zone as much of the United States and Canada. So that's a major benefit in terms of real-time collaboration. And then tools like Slack and other uh other other uh, productivity tools were coming along, Trello, making it easier to organize uh, project management across different time zones and across different countries. Uh, yeah. And so at first, we focused entirely on clients in Latin America. We thought we'll be sort of a high-scale provider in Latin America, um, and uh, we'll learn our chops that way. Um, and there was always a lot of downward pressure on our on our pricing in Latin America because okay. there were just a lot of people who would do the same thing, but for for cheaper. Um, yes. And then in 2016, um, I had this I, I had this notion that I wanted to start focusing on the U.S. market. And my wife and I had ordered a heater for our house because Quito is at um, uh, almost 3,000 meters, so that's like 12,000 feet. It's really high in the mountains. Um, and it okay. can get cold here. Um, yeah. People think that because we're on the equator that it's that it's warm, but it can actually get <laughs> quite cold. And right. the the heater, uh, the the company that processed the purchase uh, made a mistake uh, between my uh, credit card address and the delivery address. So they sent the, the heater to the wrong address. So I, I reached out to the CEO and I said, look, this happened. Uh, and we got to talking and he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I have this marketing company. And he said, well, I've been praying for to God to send me someone like you. Uh, and, and so that was my first client in the United States. Um, you were good. So God, you were, so God was on your sales team. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was divine intervention. Uh, and yes, from sir. there, we started building out um, our services uh, for U.S. companies and Canadian companies, but with a very narrow focus. Our thought was, let's just focus on doing a few things really, really well. And let's be extremely picky about who we work with, because in the services industry, there's always a temptation to work with anybody. But um, if people haven't worked with your type of service before, then they might not necessarily understand the value that you add. Uh, right. And so uh, we we did that. And then when the pandemic hit, we had a, a slight readjustment as some clients in different spheres that were more uh, disproportionately hurt uh, left and then other clients came in. But really, for us, the pandemic was a moment when the the market kind of realized that um, 
this trend is here to stay. Remote work is here to stay. And if you can work with somebody remotely in the United States, why can't you work with somebody remotely in Latin America? And so right. our trajectory continued um, up until this day, and we and we had two very good years despite all of the um, uh, all of the, the turmoil and, and the, the the personal cost of of, of the pandemic. Um, but one of the other things that had happened was that in in 2019 here in Ecuador we had some protests that shut down the country for a week, and it was during that week that we developed our kind of remote work infrastructure. And then after that, we, we never really looked back. So we were sort awesome. of ready to work remotely when the world became aware that remote work was going to become a thing. So, so let's kind of talk about, let's kind of tie back into that marketing piece for, that David, uh, David's group was uh, had the opportunity to learn from you about. So talk about that as an element for, for your company. And what's the name of the company? Uh, the name of the company is, is Centrico Digital. Uh, we just announced uh, yesterday um, that it was that it has been purchased, so we can talk about that a little nice. bit later. Um, yeah. But I think the the kind of key insight I had was uh, when I lived in in Ecuador in in 2006, I would use the bus system to move around a lot in Quito, where I live, and I had this insight. So one of the things that happens on public buses, and this happens in any country in Latin America, here a public bus costs 25 cents, so it's very accessible, and then you get on the bus. And oftentimes what will happen is that um, people will get on the bus to try to sell you things. Um, okay. And some of these people um, can be scary, very scary looking. Um, and uh, oftentimes what will happen is, you know, maybe somebody gets on a bus and maybe they have a tattoo on their face and they immediately, and they'll have like a bag of chocolates or a bag of candy and they'll walk up and down the bus and they will put the chocolate in your hand. Okay. And once they put the chocolate in the hand, there's not an expectation that you will buy it. It's just part of the sales process that they put the chocolate in your hand and then they will normally tell a story. And oftentimes that story will be something like, I used to uh, lead a life of crime and a life of sin. And then often there's a religious component. So I asked God to save me and God um, helped me. And now I am trying to support my four or five brothers and sisters and anything that you can pay for this chocolate um, helps me and my journey. And so the, the thing that I realized from this experience was, first of all, um, as soon as they put the, the candy or the chocolate in your hand, your resistance to purchasing drops immediately. Mm. You are more mm. than willing to purchase it once it's actually in your hand. And then the element of storytelling um, really uh, changes that product from being a generic product into something that you have some sort of emotional or sentimental attachment to. And the other thing that they say is pay whatever you want, um, which is a wonderful pricing strategy. Because if you look at the economics, maybe it costs them... 10 cents to purchase each uh, chocolate. And I'm probably going to pay him 50 cents, which is the most common uh, coin that we have. So he's making a fairly good margin uh, by saying, pay whatever you want, uh, because very few people are going to pay less than the cost. So what I I started seeing this and I I developed it into kind of a marketing philosophy that we implemented in our team, which was that uh, we have to find out how do we get the candy in the hand? How do we get p- the candy in the hand of the people that we want to sell to? And then how do we tell a story that makes that service or that product um, have a, an extra value that it didn't have before? Uh, so a lot of people in our space focus on inbound marketing. We are also practitioners of inbound marketing, but we wanted to do uh, another layer so that we could compete not just as generic content producers, but also um be really skilled at the technical side of sales and marketing, but also skilled mm-hmm. at the storytelling side of, of it. Yes. 
So, so you became a master storyteller. So you went from, you went from uh, Spanish and literature at St. Thomas into technology and Google, Twitter, and now you're telling bedtime stories, which you're a father. So that's quite yes. naturally your bedtime stories must be just freaking epic. It really <laughs> must be. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, right now we're, we're, we're very dependent on uh, cookie monster and Elmo for those stories. <laughs> as, as my kids get older, I'll, I'll hope to tell them stories that will make them curious about the world. Yeah, well, that's so wonderful. And just back to our friend David. Um, I when I, I've introduced David a few times in uh, my journey. I used to be the entrepreneur in residence for the province of New Brunswick, and I used to always say, "I want my kids to grow up. I want everybody in New Brunswick to grow up." And their kids say, "The kids say to their parents, tell me that story of David Alston again." Mm. <laughs> yeah, it'll be, be a winner for sure. So, so you um, you sold your company. Now, tell me if you could. And I and I don't want to delve into areas that are not that mm-hmm. are, aren't my business, but talk about the sales process of a business. Uh, what yeah. goes through? Because a lot of people hear that they hear a lot about raising money. But what's the process of selling? And any tips? Yeah. So I had you know had this spell in Silicon Valley, and I walked away from that experience really turned off from the world of. Raising money and you know Series A, Series B, Series C, um, mm. and because I realized in, in, through conversations with a lot of friends who moved from Google into the startup world that no matter what value system you have, once you accept outside money, um, you will compromise your values to do mm-hmm. what, um, what your investors want you to do, um, and it's basically because you're always on borrowed time. Uh, and then mm. I have a friend who's working for a company that is going towards an IPO and they said, and I asked him about it and he said, for us, an IPO is just another capital raise because you're okay. always, you've always promised something and to get that money, that money allows you to survive and now you have to go out to deliver. So right. I said, I want to, um, I, I want to create a company that um, requires no capital to get started. Uh, that is creative because I'm very fulfilled with, with doing creative work. Um, and that has this sort of social component to it. And one of the things we did was we decided that we would be sort of Robin Hoods of knowledge. So we would take the best practices around sales and marketing that a lot of large companies uh, have, and we would share them with NGOs and purpose-driven organizations, because a lot of those organizations are filled with generalists and and they often Mm. lack technical skills. So we would step in and and provide that technical knowledge. Um, And so we did this for eight years. And then what I realized was... um, that if you have a company and you're looking for an exit, then it's it's not just going to happen. This is the first thing is, is that people think that, that that you know people you build it and they will come and and yeah. somebody will find you. You actually have to go out and market your product, and that means figuring out who buys companies in your space, uh, who would be a good fit for you, and then how do you get close to those people uh, while seeing interested without seeing desperate? Because right. no one wants to do a deal with somebody who is not motivated to sell. But also, it's not in your favor to be entirely desperate to sell because then you're not really going to get the best price for for what you're you're doing. And I think another thing that happens to a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the professional services space, is that they enter the conversation with a completely flawed notion of what their company is worth. Um, right. And I say that because most companies have debts and liabilities. Um, if you have friends that are in the sort of tech SaaS space then they won't understand how acquisitions happen in other uh, spaces. So in the agency space, for example, 
rather than multipliers of revenue, there's usually some sort of multiplier of a profit. And there's a couple of different profit uh, uh, metrics that could be used, whether that's EBITDA or seller discretionary earnings. And then uh, the uh, then so you have to first understand what your your company is worth, where there might be discount factors. Are they buying you because you have attractive clients? Are they buying you because um, you have a really good team? Is it more like an acquihire? And if there's no intellectual property, then your friends who are working in the SaaS space don't really have an understanding of what your company is worth. When when really an acquisition in the professional service space is usually someone taking over contracts, whether those are right. employment contracts or or client contracts. Um, and then there are things like earnouts that don't exist in the SaaS space. Um, so it's it's really good to be educated on all of these topics before you get into those conversations. And, and it just so happened that in my case, the, the acquisition took place over the course of eight or nine months. And because I didn't have any uh, imperative to sell, I mean, we had a really strong uh, BATNA, you know, a best alternative to a negotiated, negotiated agreement, which was the company was doing better than it ever had before. And state, right. of course, was a very a legitimate uh, path for us to, to take. Sure. So my first thought was, if this doesn't work out, then I have learned so much about the acquisition process. Mm. And I've spent a lot of time with somebody who is an OG in the, the agency space, which is who is Peter Lang, the head of Yahoo Network, uh, who eventually uh, purchased our company. But the other benefit of, of a nine-month engagement is that an, an, an acquisition is often an exchange of risk. When somebody acquires a company, they're basically buying the risk that was inherent in the business beforehand, but you purchase it with trust um, right. because there's so much trust that has to, be, has to be exchanged in order for a deal to get done. And then you have this sneaky factor called lawyers who will often step in. <laughs> and after you've decided what it is that you think you want for your deal, they will come in and put other ideas in your head. And then you can easily get carried away thinking, oh, well, I'm not getting what I deserve, but you never really wanted those things or had those things in mind beforehand. So Interesting. there are a lot of minefields. I understand entirely how any deal can fall apart at the last second. Uh, but the most important thing is that if there's a lot of trust between uh, the buyer and the seller, then that's just the, the grease that makes everything else work uh, really, really well. Yeah, beautiful. I, thank you so much for taking us through that journey. And I, I love the fact that you, you know, you really went in there not caring, quote unquote, if you made the sale or not. And I'm sure that that made the entire process uh, much better. I also, uh, you know, I love the fact about the the way you entered into doing your businesses. Personally, I get very... I don't know if the word's distraught, concerned with how we glorify, glamorize raising capital as a society versus getting a freaking customer. You get enough customers in your backyard, then you're going to have lots of opportunity to sell to and raise capital. And so I love, again, that you reinforced that that's important. That's actually extremely important, and uh, and it's not as glamorous a ride as uh, what we think it is when it comes to uh, raising capital. So yeah. uh, I appreciate that. Um, but my Matthew, wife says, my wife says often that it's you don't have to be a unicorn; it's okay to be a workhorse. And, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot of good businesses out there that are workhorses that are very valuable because um, they haven't raised capital, or maybe they're not; they don't have too much debt or too many obligations on their hands. Right. But they're great companies, their fundamentals are good, their unit economics are good, and, and they're attractive for other people. So we can get carried away with the media attention that's placed on these big yep. exits and, and whatnot. But um, 
I don't necessarily think that we should all fetishize it as as the goal because I I don't know that people when they start down that path are really aware of what they're in for. So you mentioned your wife a few times during this conversation. What's her name? Yeah, so her name is Michelle. Um, I married up, um, and she is from Ecuador. Also studied at St. Thomas. And when we moved back to Ecuador in 2013, she we we had this question of what will help change the Ecuadorian economy for the good. I had this idea around globalized services, and she built a business that uh, has five co-working spaces. It has an incubator. It has a services company, and it also has um, uh, an investment fund. So she is what we call an, 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 an ecosystem builder, and she's helping uh, primarily social businesses, purpose-driven businesses that are looking to have some sort of positive impact either on the environment or on society. And uh, she has all of these different tools in her toolkit to help them grow. So um, you're right. You did marry up. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Good for you, man. High five. So, um, and, and by the way, I don't think she married down. <laughs> I, just, I just think you married up. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a, you know, I, I met um, when I was at Oxford, I met um, with a, a, a well-known Canadian businessman and I asked him for advice. And he said, you should always try to be a big fish in a small pond. And I think that I'm not necess- it wasn't necessarily a, a big fish in Fredericton, but it helped that um, the being in a small town, I had a strong value proposition uh, when I started uh, introducing myself to her. And so maybe if we were in Toronto, she would have you know, married somebody else. But uh, by luck of the draw, uh, I was able to, to leverage my position in uh, as, as probably the only Spanish-speaking gringo um, in our university to, 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 to start a relationship with her. Well, it, it sounds like, again, you had God on your side in sales. So <laughs> probably, <good for> you. <laughs> So... Um, why I asked that question, um, and thank you for diving deeper into her, I love to have her on the podcast, um, is that uh, I've, uh, I've become, my, uh, my partner and I, we've been big fans of, uh, of the Netflix series or Prime series, uh, Yellowstone. I don't okay. know if you've seen it yet. but it's I've heard about fun. it, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, yeah it's, quite, it's quite spectacular. Anyway, rule of thumb in Yellowstone is that you do not talk business at the table. Mm. So do you have any rules of you and Michelle uh, at home that you say, okay, this is how we integrate it? Is it full force? Is there rules? And why I say that is because a lot of partners are in business together. And so any rules, any hacks that you think might work well for that would be appreciated. No, I mean, our only rule is is sort of probably after nine or 10 at night, we don't talk about problems. Um, because right. we're, we're trying to, I, I will, I'm the type of person who will lie awake, staring at the ceiling, thinking about a problem, even if it's not my own problem. Um, so we try to, but, but actually it's, it's more of the opposite. And, and the reason I say that is because, uh, when I got to Oxford, I felt a great deal of imposter syndrome. Um, mm. a lot of the other people who were there on my scholarship were from central Canada. Um, their parents were all professionals. My parents were more working, working class. And they just had this uh, baseline knowledge of the world and business and arts that that I just didn't feel like I I had. Um, Mm. And so when our children were born, we thought, no, actually, we're going to expose them to these conversations. We're going to expose our children to through inertia. They hear us talking about P&Ls and, um, you know, building companies and, and, and things like that. So that it's it's there for them. It's part of their education, but it's not something we're forcing on them. It's just something that they're picking up on. Uh, 
So, uh, so, so we don't, I, I think when we first met, we were more sort of dreamers and were, our interests were more around social movements. So we spent a lot of time thinking about that. Then we went through graduate school together. So it was more about big ideas. Uh, then when we entered the workforce, neither of us ever expected to end up in business. Um, but just by twist of fate, we ended up in business. So at this stage of our relationship, and we've been married for 18 years, it's mm-hmm. one of these things that we're able to do together because we have companies that are similar size. We have similar problems, though she has a lot of problems that I don't have to deal with. Um, <laughs> and so we're able to be each other's partner, but we're also careful not really to work together. And this is something yes. that I think bothers her a little bit is that people will either assume that people often assume that I'm running her marketing, which I am not. And yes. so they will come to her and compliment me on her marketing initiatives. And she has to say, no, 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 no. Matthew's yeah. just in the background. I always say like, I'm, I'm like the vice president of her company because yes. it's like, like the vice president of the United States, you have a cool title, but no real responsibilities. <laughs> and so we are each other's consigliers. Um, we, we help each other think through things. But having that distance from the operational side of the business, I think, allows us to provide each other a perspective where we know the, the, the nature of each other's business intimately, but we're not involved emotionally. So we can try to give each other good advice without, without getting wrapped up in, in what's going on on the ground. I, I, love, I love it. I love it for all kinds of reasons, but one in particular, if, there, if there's a strategy behind it um, that you both agree upon and also obviously you both execute. And I love the fact your children get to learn a new language uh, mm. as part of that. You know, I, I mean, I speak a bit of French, definitely English, but I say I'm bilingual. I speak, I speak entrepreneurship and that's what you're teaching them. So that, it's that's a great very language cool. to speak. Yeah. Yes, it is. It sure is. It's very um, well, you can, you can pretty well take it in, into any country as long as you speak the language of the country. Mm-hmm. So, um, Matthew, you talked, uh, you know, you talked about the gentleman that bought your company and, mm-hmm. you know, the relationship you have. And one of the ways in which he's minimized the risk on his purchase is you're hanging on for a bit. So talk about the next stage of your life, what's your, what's your plans and including that, my friend, you're, uh, you're touching base back to Atlantic Canada. So let's wrap that back to, yeah. Points and why back in Atlanta, Canada? Because you're an Atlantic Canadian entrepreneur, transplanter in Ecuador, and now you're coming back to hang out a bit in yeah. New Brunswick. So I, I mentioned that at the very start that I try to like live life and then build my career around around my life. And one of the things I've dreamed of, I've been away from New Brunswick almost uh, 20 years. Um, mm. And so I, I go back frequently. The longest period I have was was through the pandemic, where it was almost over two years that I couldn't travel back. Um, but my heart has always uh, been in, in New Brunswick. I don't long to live there, but I do long to spend a lot of time there. Um, right. And so if I were to design my life from scratch, I would say, well, I would like to um, live part of the year, especially the warm part of the year. Because if you leave Canada, you eventually lose your resistance to the cold. I don't know if a lot of Canadians know that, but your ability to sustain a Canadian winter is not permanent. You can lose that. Um, You can lose that in a week going down. (laughs) Exactly. So I would like to spend, you know, uh, three or four months a year in New Brunswick and then the rest of the year in, in, in Ecuador. Um, it's obviously complicated with schools and things like that, but slowly, um, we're finding solutions and the world is finding solutions. Um, but, uh, I, uh, had this vision a long time ago that I wanted to start creating work in 
the Maritimes. And um, so in 2019, I set out to create jobs in New Brunswick. Then the pandemic struck um, and my children were born. So it got uh, set back a little bit. But last week, our first employee arrived through an intercompany transfer um, to Moncton. And now he's based in Moncton. And uh, he'll be working with the new company, as will I. Um, but I think one of the things that I've always thought is that when you when you work at a company, there's two things that can happen. Either the company can outgrow you or you can outgrow the company. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, it's, it's time to move on. And I had built this business that was doing well, but I couldn't shake this feeling of, of personal stagnation that I had kind of learned the things that I was meant to learn from an eight-year entrepreneurial venture. And so when the opportunity came um came up to to join a company that operates at another scale and that um, is doing programmatic acquisitions and and really um, operating a lot more on the financial side of the business. I thought this is a great opportunity to both employ the things that I've learned about culture and employees and management and growth, and also learn uh, from these individuals who have really mastered the the, the the financial side of the business and who have a completely different perspective. Um, and one of the benefits is, and one of the reasons why I was so fond of the people who, who bought our company is that they were already a 100% remote company. So there was no pressure to mm-hmm. move. My team, 100% of my team moved from our company to the new company. Um, and so there were new growth opportunities. And as an entrepreneur, I, I've always cared deeply about the people that work for me. And one of the things that was really hard for me to admit sometimes is when uh, some of our employees had outgrown the the company and then needed to move on and do other things. And so now I feel like all of us, myself included, have this runway that we didn't have before um, of opportunity, of learning, cool. of growth. Uh, and so um, when you start to calculate the cost of any deal, most people just focus on well, what what was what was the final number? What was you know how much money did you? Yeah, right. Right. But there's all of these intangibles that have to be taken into account. And I feel like I, I won the lottery on on the things that I really care about um, in terms of being able to give the 27 people who were part of my company um, a new growth opportunity. And then eventually the, the idea of integrated global teams will just be um, so natural that you'll start a job and somebody will be in Argentina and somebody else will be in Bangladesh. And, and this is just how we work. Um, so I'm 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 happy to uh, partake in the building of that reality, um, and I'm also um, excited to to see it come to fruition. Well, um, a lot of things go through my head, but one of them is that you're focusing on your people um, and the your desire to continue to learn more. I mean, you know, I I, <laughs> I remember I was talking to a woman at the at the government one day. I said, well, she says, I said, where do you work? And she says, the government. I said, what department? And, uh, <laughs> and she says, such a touch. And I, I then asked her, I said, oh, you must, you must absolutely love it. And she says, no, I hate it. And I said, well, why oh. do you do it? She said, because of the benefits. And so mm. I'm just like, mm. so when I hear your, your, um, your, your focus on that and your genuineness behind it. That's just, uh, that's great leadership, my friend. And, uh, congratulations on, on that. I think it's, uh, it's really spectacular. Thank so you. And um, I would just add to that, um, just quickly because, um, sure. I, 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 a couple, uh, last year I published a piece in, in TechCrunch about the kind of Atlantic Canada tech boom. And one of the things that I've always believed was that eventually we would move to remote work and Atlantic Canada would be really well positioned 
um, to take mm-hmm. advantage of that because we have such a high quality of life in Atlantic Canada. And I think we've seen that come to fruition. There's been a number yes. of articles in the New York Times and other, and other uh, publications about people moving to Atlantic Canada. There's always an initial few bumps where property values change and things like that. But uh, the truth is that you have these tech companies that have proven that you can build from New Brunswick. They were successful yep. before um, things like the res- great resignation happened and before the pandemic happened. And now we just have this proof of concept, which means that we can build a very different economy for Atlantic Canada than the one we had before. And so in many ways, the things I'm doing and trying to do in Ecuador and Latin America are the same things I would like to see happen in Atlantic Canada, which is uh, migration from economies that pull things out of the ground to economies where we use our heads and our skills and can therefore offer different opportunities, because I don't know what my opportunities would have been if I'd stayed in New Brunswick. I kind of had to go out into the world and to, to, to find my place. But my hope is that, uh, you know, the, the next generation, the next few generations of, of New Brunswickers and Atlantic Canadians can build really fulfilling careers without having to, to move. Well, there's a couple of things that come up. <laughs> I told you from the beginning, this would be an ad-lib conversation. And yeah. it is for me. But what you're teaching people here is, yes, the importance of understanding the value of, of and the opportunity to work directly from New Brunswick. You don't have to leave. But also, you got to look beyond New Brunswick in order to re- really look for some magnificent opportunities. And, uh, and I find that that sometimes is a challenge. Uh, for a lot of New Brunswickers, not necessarily New Brunswick entrepreneurs, to appreciate that the bigger world is really the bigger opportunity, which you can do in your own backyard. So, yeah. so Ma- Matthew, uh, how do people hang out with you, my friend? Because they're going to be lean in. And by the way, I, uh, I know I mentioned about getting the bio. If you can send me that link for that TechCrunch um, article, that yes. would be so helpful. Because mm-hmm. we'll put that in the bio when we when we uh, send out the promotion and so on. Um, but um, yeah, man, how do people hang out with you? How do they find you? Yeah. LinkedIn's obvious, but uh, the what best else? place to find me is is on LinkedIn um, because okay. I'm on Twitter and but I, I tweet mostly in Spanish. My community is mostly in Spanish, so um, okay. it might not be as as interesting to follow me there. Uh, but okay. definitely, LinkedIn is is the number one place to go to find me, and I'm 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 a big fan of that network. Um, I, I publish there frequently, different ideas about management and entrepreneurship and and whatnot. So, uh, and and I'm the only Matthew Carpenter at Avalo there, so uh, it's easy to find me. <laughs> I love it. Well, we started this conversation with uh, David Alston recommending you to me. Now I know why. <laughs> this oh, has been a spectacular, spectacular conversation at the speed that I like to go to, by the way. <laughs> so thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, to chat with you, Matthew. Congratulations on your journey. Keep doing your magic and, uh, you know, keep raising that Atlanta Canadian flag like you do. We sure appreciate it because you're showing us where opportunities lie and uh, that we can do it. So uh Keep on being a rock star, man. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Rivers. Very time. much appreciate this opportunity. And uh, yes, uh, thank you so much for, for the invitation. You're welcome, sir. Okay, take care.